Hey everybody, welcome to the Health Tech Pigeon podcast, bringing you the top health tech news stories and analysis every single week. Back with me today, I have Henry and Jessica from the Somex team co-hosting. How are you doing, guys? I'm good. I'm good. I have had a quite a fun week. Been out and about, seeing clients, meeting some new health tech companies, and I also did my very first run today having been hit by a car in January. So that was really exciting. Yeah, good week, really solid. Although it is in the last two days suddenly just become immeasurably cold and I wasn't prepared for that. So uh other than the cold, lovely. Yeah, it has. And we've got our we've got our Christmas party thing uh tomorrow? Tomorrow. And yeah, yeah tomorrow. when it when it when it was announced that there's an outside component, it was relatively mild. However, now <laughs> given Given the ridiculous cold snap, I'm less excited about the outdoor component, depending on what it is. But uh, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, should we talk about some health tech, guys? Let's do it. Max. Cool. So this week, first thing, Switzerland are to accept medical devices with FDA approval. Uh, interesting. Henry, do you want to talk about this? Yeah, it's a really interesting story, isn't it? It's come from, so the EU's got the MDR, right? The Medical Devices Regulations. And they've not been a roaring success. And Switzerland is obviously outside of the EU, but has often gone along with what the EU's done in terms of medical devices and in terms of a lot of different policy areas within healthcare. And they've decided not to with this. So... If it goes through and it's not been made law yet, um, it will enable the sale of FDA-approved devices in the Swiss market, potentially maybe alongside CE Mark devices. Um, that's a big step for a European country to take, to ignore or move away from the MDR, and particularly around some of the issues with grandfathering and all the rest of it that the MDR has, to move away from that and go and align yourself with US regulation is... A, a first, and B, as it is a first, incredibly unusual for a European country. Hmm. Funny, funny that. What, have they said why they're doing it? Well, they haven't done it yet. They haven't really said why. There is There are some hints in the article from Swiss MedTech, which is a great, a great resource for all of your Swiss healthcare and health tech <laughs> news. Um, they've not specifically said why, but there are some strong hints in there around... Some potential issues that they had with the MDR that they feel like, you know, potentially feel the FDA could get stuff through a little bit quicker um, and that they think device companies will struggle to produce significant evidence that the MDR requires. It's really, really interesting in terms of a lot of the commentary that's kind of sprung up around this has been around patient safety, mm. which I feel is a little bit, uh, there's almost an arrogance to that, like a... It's it's difficult. Like I'm I'm massively pro-European in every way, but I feel that instantly banging the patient safety drum the second that someone says we're going to go to we're going to adopt US standards rather than EU standards just feels a little bit arrogant, as if to say that the FDA has no mm. that has no kind of requirements for patient safety to be front and center of everything that it regulates. Mm. Um, I think it's a very interesting one. Obviously, EU nations have no option to do this. I very much doubt the UK would do this. Um, but a very big step from a country famed for its neutrality. I wonder if it has something to do with the waiting list for C marking. I think it's C marking yeah. that is taking 
what is like two year waiting list. And I know mm-hmm. that across the industry, people are absolutely up in arms about the fact that it's really delaying, obviously, access to market and all of that kind of thing. And, you know, rightly so, it's there for a purpose. But, I, yeah, I wonder if, you know, the bureaucracy of it, and maybe it's not the bureaucracy, I don't know, but whatever it is that's holding it up is also a driver for getting these technologies to market much more quickly. Um, but I think you're right, Henry, you know, none of these regulatory frameworks are perfect. Uh, they all have their flaws. And I think without a proper discussion about why it's happening and identifying where what is really strong about the FDA offering from a regulatory perspective, um, it, the motivation is a little bit unclear. There's definitely an element of fear around the backlog in CE marking and the notified bodies just, uh, they're swamped. Yeah, Hugh Harvey from Hardin was on a panel fairly recently and was talking about this backlog and it's it's scary and it will mean that eventually, I mean, the, the eventual long-term thing that could happen there is that you have no CE marked devices left because they have to be renewed every so often. Mm-hmm. And if the backlog is that big, it just massively diminishes the number of available things on the market. That's That's a terrifying thought. Yeah, it must be terrifying for the companies, especially in this investment climate, because not only are you, well, you're delaying, therefore, access to market, which means that, you know, you need that tra- that market traction to raise more money. And therefore, you're potentially having to extend your investment runway for an undisclosed period of time before you can access market, generate revenue, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. You know, it's not only is it just not having the CE market, it has a knock-on effect elsewhere. And I think there's a lot for young companies in particular to be worried about at the moment. And I think this really just adds to that stress. Yeah, absolutely. We could definitely lose some companies who could have produced life-changing technology for thousands, millions, who knows how many people, because they simply cannot get their products to market in time. And that's, well, that's devastating, really. My mind goes to something different here, actually. and. I'm thinking post-Brexit, we've got an ability to not be tethered to the the EU stuff. If, just playing this out in my mind, if we then were were linked to the FDA approval standards and your point, Jess, about like getting things through and um, less of a backlog for that uh, assessment, what would that do for UK, US export, import, uh, spreading innovation? Because we all know that everybody raising money in the UK from VCs needs to have a big market size. The way they do that is they talk about US expansion. If that regulatory stuff has already been done um, and they don't have to pay and do that for, for both, if, if you're getting one standard across the UK and the US... Wonder if that would do some nice things for um, the spread of innovation. I don't know. And the other way, too. Um, you know, US companies that uh, wouldn't have to do anything different and would be able to enter the UK market from a regulatory perspective. Interesting is where my mind goes to there. Do you think, I to, to take that one step further, do you think that could ever happen? If you look at... If you look at how the introduction of anything US into UK healthcare is treated or reacted to, (laughs) it's very, very difficult. I mean, you've mentioned Brexit there. The two things that probably elicit the strongest response from British voters are Brexit and the NHS. And there's a sort of sacrosanct (laughs) nature of the NHS. You only have to look at like how Palantir have been treated or the reaction to Palantir having access to British uh, citizens' healthcare data. 
rightly or wrongly. Like, if you look at how that's reacted to anything that the Red Tops can scream is the privatisation of the NHS and bang that drum, it's going to be it's going to be taken badly. So an alignment with the US approval process, which would make it easier for <laughs> for US companies to sell to the NHS, is oh, just, I, I can't imagine the endless torturous headlines we'd have to go through on this pod, 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 pod line, uh, podcast. Yeah. The HSJ oh, would have a field day. The HSJ would get so excited they might explode. I was going to say, Jess, I'll, I can let you comment from a media perspective here about, <laughs> like, it's bad enough that US companies are... Uh, uh, allegedly trying to buy out um, parts of UK healthcare, I can't imagine that it would uh, it, it would go down well in the press if uh, if if FDA was accepted in the UK. Probably not. There would be have to be a very very careful narrative around it. But then, you, like even with any health tech that comes into the NHS, there are pockets of people who will say that that is privatisation anyway. So mm-hmm. you, you can never win. No. Um, but I, I I see what you're saying, James. I think, you know, there is something about it that could potentially make ses- sense for innovation. And actually, if, if thinking outside of, you know, just healthcare, the NHS and that sort of thing, you know, for technology more broadly and for the technology industry, that, you know, that's, I don't see that as necessarily being an overarching bad thing. It, you know, if it drives funding, it drives expansion, it drives research. Um and, you know, so many companies, and I think they're wrongly criticised for this, have aspirations to expand from UK to the US, because naturally, it's obviously a bigger market, it's a different market. But, uh, you know, it makes sense. And ultimately, they, these are UK based companies. So that then brings back money into the UK economy. So I don't know, I, I think I think it could be a positive thing. I'm just interested to know what the rationale is behind it. I wonder how many people have raised in the last couple of years without talking about the US in their expansion plans. Hmm. I know that, particularly if you work in primary care, like the primary care market in the UK, um, Gus Kennedy from Hero Health spoke about this the other day on LinkedIn, the primary care market in the UK is tiny. And so if you are a primary care specific piece of technology, you've got to be talking about international markets or you're not getting past a B at the very latest in terms of round. Yeah, from whom, I guess, is is the question to ask in terms of, you know, who would raise without um, without talking about US expansion, because it depends on your path to profitability, how quickly you're going to do that, what valuations, uh, because VCs won't get involved unless you're talking, you know, half a billion, a billion dollar valuation potentially. And yeah, you're absolutely right. And, and that's why I think if it's... Uh, if you if you can't raise from VC without thinking about that sort of stuff, you have to have a market size that fits with their business model. But yeah, you'd be looking you'd be looking at a different investor set. I think. All right, the next story today is uh, Whoop have identified a novel pregnancy digital biomarker for premature birth. Jess, talk to us about this one. Two of my favourite topics. Wearables, personal data. That's three of my favourite topics, (laughs) actually. Wearables, personal data, and women's health. Woo! See what I did there? That was excellent. Um, Yeah, thank you. Um, I'm coming for your puns, Henry. Anyway, (laughs) um, before I get too carried away... Uh, so essentially, Whoop, for anyone who doesn't know, is a wearable device. Um, similar to the Apple Watch, no screen, but it provides um, 
a really high spec tracking of different digital biomarkers, uh, tracks your recovery, tracks heart rate, many, many other things. Um, and increasing popularity, unlike lots of other wearables, it works on a subscription model rather than a, you know, outright, um, like an Apple Watch or Fitbit or similar. Um, and they have identified this new uh, digital biomarker that helps us grieve for premature birth, which I think is very cool and very exciting. I think there are a few interesting things about this, though. Um, so they talk about the um, preterm birth being the second leading cause of infant mortality um, and that nearly, well, over 35% of all infant deaths are preterm related. They also talk about the demographics that this affects most, which is... Um, and these are these are these are US stats, so but predominantly ethnic minority groups. Now, I think that anything that we can do to help identify um earlier health issues that then can be tackled and support people to have a better quality of life and a better quality of life for longer, um is fantastic. And also anything that enables equity of health and healthcare also fantastic. My issue is that with when we're talking about, you know, infant mortality and also issues, and this is a bit kind of earlier than obviously birth, but like issues in pregnancy. So the impact of these issues is varied across different socioeconomic groups. And we know that people who earn less are more likely to experience some of these issues in pregnancy, in birth. We know that that has crossover with ethnic minority groups as well. And so whilst it's amazing that they've identified this digital biomarker, my challenge is how do we, this, this particular device is very much targeted at people with a solid level of disposable income. We know we're in a really difficult economic climate but if we've got these issues that it's claiming to address that are affecting people that don't have that um, disposable income, it's actually not tackling that issue super well. And so I think there is a slight challenge here about how do we disseminate these kinds of technologies to actually make a difference to that problem? Because, you know, for someone like me, for instance, who is white, middle class, if I'm pregnant, I am. I'm definitely going to be investing in all sorts of different things to like have the best pregnancy that I can have. I'm also more likely to have better care and better health outcomes. And my baby is more likely to have better health outcomes. And I can afford to pay for something like whoop. Um, but I'm already likely to have that, that, you know, those better outcomes anyway, but someone who is not in, who doesn't share some of my privileges and, and is not going to be able to access whoop. It's not going to, it's not going to make, their experience and their outcomes any better. So I think it's a fantastic development. Great that, you know, we're identifying that technology can do these things and is doing these things. I want to see more ideas about how we make it accessible and actually have an impact on the problem um, in an accessible way and an equitable way. James, I know that you have a slightly different view uh of wearables to me uh, 
<laughs> quite contrasting in fact so i yeah what do you what do you think about it yeah so well for me wearables in general my my problem with wearables is just that it's a very personal one that i just don't want to know more i'm not a person that advocates for uh the quantified self i don't like that personally i'm not preventing others from doing that and wanting that and i get it where something is the fragility of human life is tested in pregnancy i can imagine that if it was my child then perhaps i'd take a certain a different view and i can appreciate that um so that's my view on wearables i actually have i suppose i feel a bit of a responsibility to produce a bit of a, an argument uh to, not to the country but but to complement what you just said about increasing access this is a very common criticism for health tech particularly though health tech devices particularly those in the b2c market which is yeah but they can only be afforded by the rich well yes i can appreciate that but there is also a sensible conversation to be had about okay then what is the role of those b2c people that can afford this stuff because there is an argument to say that take, I don't know, uh, any of the B2C devices or software or things that can help that people are willing to pay for, like Otto Vitinitus or there's, lo there's loads, right? Um, people are willing to pay for it themselves and the system is not willing to buy it for mm. their patients yeah, yeah. to give access to more people. The NHS won't buy it. Let's be like really kind of crude about this. If the NHS isn't going to buy it uh, and it's not going to be able to benefit everybody at a public health level and, 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 and that kind of scale, then isn't there a role for uh, Robin Hooding this and going, let the rich pay for it, let the rich test it, let the rich provide the, uh, the, data set and the evidence and the health economic model all based on this b2c model can the private sector be that can also then it go to private clinics and can it go to private things that are more willing to take a chance they're more able to do that stuff that provides a health economic model for a public health system then go okay that works because by the way that might also weed out the things that don't work it might weed out the things that I'm not going to say harmful. Nothing's going to reach patients with harmful, you'd hope, but it might. So there's there's this argument of like, okay, yes, I get it. We need to we need to give access to to the many and not let these things benefit the few. But there's a balance. I think there's a balance between okay, those things are doing well and making profits and and clearly providing a benefit. Well, in that case, what's the quickest way that we can now get this to the masses through a decent model? Now, is it those companies' responsibility to give back and give a percentage of profits and, and do uh, projects in uh, in developing countries and lower-income countries and uh, emerging markets and things like that? Well, maybe. Is it the role of public health and government? Well, maybe. Is it a role of them working together? Well, also maybe. I don't know. But I'm, I don't, I'm, I'm not sure. My, my politics mm. is confused. My this is confused. I don't know where I quite stand on this, but I can appreciate there's a broader, broader conversation and, and arguments around it. The data set thing you raised is quite an interesting point because what's the validity of a data set 
that has only been tested on a small, a very small segment of society. Like mm. if everyone in that data set is already predisposed to have the best access to care, you can't just knock it down by a few percentage points. Because if you look at... What's the alternative though? It's a great point. Really good point. I just wonder if that data is ever valid. Like, <laughs> some I read something the other day, which was exactly that actually, that like your argument, James, is absolutely valid. But the the flip side of that is that if you do that, you you do end up with skewed data. And if ultimately the issues predominantly affect a certain demographic group and the research or the data set doesn't reflect that demographic group, then how valid is it? Well, what's the alter- It has to be valid somewhere first. If it has to be valid somewhere first, then why not the people that are paying for it, not the public purse? Why not the individual's purse? I, 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 I get it. I, I also think as well with new technologies, like I don't, you know, let's be clear about this. This is a new digital biomarker. And so there is not widespread access when any technology, any medicine is produced, developed uh, and begins to be used. It, you know, it's, it, it starts off being for the few and then becomes for the many. And so I don't, you know, it, it might be jumping the gun. Maybe they do have plans and, and you know, it's not just on the manufacturer or on the developer, I don't think, to consider this. But I think it's questions that, and a conversation, like exactly this conversation that we should be having at this macro level. I think I think the companies are doing their best. I yeah. think that the companies are doing, the, 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 and let's not even say companies, right? The people inventing machines and devices that are trying to make human health better have to play the hand that they're dealt. They they are dealt what we have now, mm-hmm. a public public health systems and private health systems. That's what they're dealt with. If the public health system had a better way of incentivizing itself to take more risks on new technology and provide safe environments for testing and all these different things, then I'm sure that there is then a moral argument of where do you put it and they would perhaps try and put down the public public but if the only way really to get over the well i need a trial and uh, but to get a trial i need evidence and to get evidence i need a trial that's the public health system right if if the way of breaking that cycle is to go to people who are just going to pay for it and use it to get a bit of data i I think they're just playing the hand that they're dealt. I don't, I don't think they're choosing to necessarily go down a B2C route because they are morally corrupt and don't want to give accessibility to all. Who the hell to be in clear, I, I, that's wants abso- to do that, that? That's absolutely not what I'm suggesting. I, that, I'm not, I'm not, I was not suggesting that in the first place. I was opening up a broad conversation about the fact that I, that I think this is amazing and I, I agree with you on many of the points that you've talked about. And I do think that everyone in in our industry is doing their best and yes there has to be commercial values like you can't just work for free and do nothing like you know we we run a business and we know that so uh, you know but it's a discussion that we should have to say you know what is the bigger picture how do we eventually like how do we make healthcare better for everyone with these things like what's what's the longer term plan um and not to say that you know, the company should be doing this or you should be doing that. It's I think it's an important discussion to be had and, and make sure that, you know, we are aware of the situation in which these and sometimes vacuums in which we technologies, solutions, medicines exist, because as long as we're talking about it, we're doing something about it. Um, so it's not criticism and it's certainly not calling any companies in the health tech uh, 
world, apart from Theranos, Elizabeth Holmes, I'm talking to you, corrupt. Um, I, I think there's so much amazing work to be done and that is being done. Um, it's, it's not a criticism of that at all. James's idea of if we if we are going to do this with um with a broader range of society rather than kind of self-selecting people who can afford to take part in these sort of unofficial trials almost then there are grants and there are there is innovation funding out there which is a relatively risk-free way of doing things but most of those grants and most of those innovation funds only go to people who have at least a little bit of data so it is a kind of mm. self-fulfilling never-ending cycle unfortunately. yeah and and look i i just think it, it's very easy to pick holes in things and it's very easy to um you know when when a when a device or a software as a device gets itself to market in some way shape or form and it just you know in this case or whatever case it's to a certain demographic it's then easy to just say well, what about the others and it's like well they've just busted their ass to get something to market <laughs> like it's there and they you know they're going to have plans to do this and it'd be, <clears throat> it'd be ideal for it to to get to market elsewhere i think it's it's broadly it's just easy to stifle innovation isn't it and it's easy to pick holes in things and i think the more difficult thing to do is to is to actually you know appreciate all the information and, and appreciate the nuance and try and figure out a way to get to that accessibility to all and what is that and how does that look and it's something along the lines of all the things that we've talked about of of what is the best balance between making money in that sector versus creating evidence for the other sectors and then um robin hooding in some way shape or form to actually perhaps give more of a spread i don't know but um yeah apparently that's that's that that accessibility thing is something that triggers me so there we go you learn something new I think that's the other thing to mention as well like i am willing to i'm willing to have my mind changed on all sorts and i think you know i remember i actually remember i got asked this on a panel um a while ago it was a panel i was on with uh joanna actually that i was on uh that, that we had at google the other, the other month and um it was it was a while ago and someone someone in the i was talking about devices and i was talking about uh how good how, how good they are and how they generate evidence and they often go b to c and they often go um to private clinics and things like that and, I, and someone in the crowd asked me the same thing about accessibility and and broad accessibility and it well in that case is health tech just for the rich and i was pretty early on in my journey and thinking and all about all this sort of stuff and it stumped me and i remember just thinking like actually good point is it and then sort of had this existential sort of crisis of just like oh my god am i doing totally the wrong thing like how but then I, I looked into it and I and I spoke to some people on it and thought like what is the best way and and and, and the it was the, it was the entrepreneurs that were saying well this is the only thing that we have like how else can we do it how else can we generate how else do we know that it's that it has value unless I know someone's going to pay for it and how do I generate evidence for the public sector if the public sector won't trial it without evidence and so that's where I've got to with it and I think oh, I'm coming from a place of being stumped with it myself and you know, having my own um, assumptions challenged. And yeah, the desire for those companies to get to a practical solution has often led to them being here. So yeah, as I say, willing to have my mind changed at any point with new information. So if anyone wants to give me a decent argument, either way, I'm happy to hear it. 
Uh, next story today is how a population data set and predictive risk analytics underpinned the Wirral's social media health campaign. Not far from where I used to live in Liverpool. Um, Henry, tell us about this one. First thing is to say this is this is a, it's a bit of a puff piece. It's obviously just it's gone in there fairly unadulterated from Oracle and Cerner, but it's a piece of technology that not many people are that cognizant of, and I find that weird given how big Oracle's reach is, um, and Cerner obviously, even though they're now one company. So it's called uh, Healthy Intent, and it is it's a system that pulls data from a variety of different sources across either a trust or an ICS or anyone, uh, any large organization, and amalgamates them and then produces usable data sets. So one of my biggest bugbears that I see a lot in pitch decks and I see a lot in people's marketing is when they're like, we've got all this data. Fantastic. What are you going to do with it? How is it useful? How are you going to use it? How does it integrate with other data? How does this improve what the organization already has? Because data in and of itself is just numbers. It's just spreadsheets and numbers. Data without narrative and without intent is useless. So healthy intent, cunningly, has intent in the title. And they've basically managed to use this data and bring in some behavioral scientists and behavioral marketeers, which I really like the title, um, to create a campaign that has had a really positive impact. So they've seen a huge rise in the number of people actually being vaccinated. So I should have said at the beginning, there's a campaign to get people vaccinated. Uh, so they've seen a massive increase in the number of people getting vaccinated. That obviously has knock-on effects on the pressures that the NHS is going through in terms of winter pressures and staffing because fewer people will get flu. Fantastic. Um, and they've also been using it for some maternity campaigns. There's loads of different things they've been using this data for to then create with the intent to create some really good marketing. And I think it's a really nice story of someone saying, here's a data set. It, when used properly, this can save the NHS money. That's that's a really, really positive thing with an actual tangible output um, and a tangible result. Yeah, it's it's an interesting example of the power of good marketing in healthcare. Um, and of course, I'm going to say that. And looking at this, I've you know clicking on the full case study and having a look at what they actually did on social media. Well, they, it, it says here exactly what they said they did. The imagery and messaging of the campaign was purposely designed to alleviate vaccine hesitancy and to indicate that the vaccines were safe and effective. They've looked at the click-throughs and all that sort of marketing-y stuff to say that basically it was a success. Yeah, this is, this is incredibly interesting. It, it, it shows the power of marketing's ability to change behaviors, positive behaviors and positive behaviors in healthcare, which at the end of the day is what all of our clients want us to do, frankly. Um, when you look at this, guys, when you click on the case study and you look at why has this worked? Why, why do you think this is, why do you think this has had such a positive effect? I think the what they talk about in the case study is the behavioural principle of social norming, which I really like as a term. Um, and just making this seem like a thing that everybody does. And I think the best marketing doesn't talk about product. It doesn't talk about the benefits. It just makes it seem like, well, yeah, obviously. Obviously, mm -hmm. this is the right way to solve whatever problem it is that I have. You're not speaking to... You know, you see lots of marketing that's out there like, we've just launched this new feature, and, uh, but it never says how it solves a problem for their key clients, their key customers. And this is basically just normalizing the idea of having these vaccines. And it 
normalizes it through imagery it normalizes it through a very conversational tone but that normalization has been important in increasing the uptake of people having that vaccine which is huge that will save lives and i think that that's that's a really strong positive well thought out campaign it just makes it feel like yeah obviously this is how we do it yeah i think we all know that nhs public health campaigns even like from a farmer perspective they don't always hit the mark but I think what's nice about this is it has really clear messaging. Um, and I think it's also put people right at... It's humanised it. Um, and I think it's spoken directly to the worries that people have. Um, but as I say, it's got that emotive element. It's talking about protecting yourself and your loved ones and, like, staying safe. It's got imagery of, you know, people spending time with their grandchildren, potentially, or, you know pregnant women doing things that well, I guess normal people do too, out for a walk with your partner, you know, and, and with your child. Um, but it speaks directly to those worries, but in not in a dictatorial way. It's just in a sensible and accessible way, I suppose. Um, and I think it's, yeah, I, I've worked on lots of these campaigns, as I say, it's very easy for them to fall, fall short of the mark. Um, but I think they've, they've done a good job in, I guess, just getting getting to the root of what it is that people are worried about without overcomplicating it or seeming like Big Brother telling you what to do, um, which is a really difficult balance as particularly a, a you know, public service and government service. It has also used one of my favourite, if, if, if anyone listening gets the chance to look at the article, one of my favourite stock images I think of all time, which is uh, three lads having a right old giggle with a pint and a burger. <laughs> I just think that's, that's proper geezer territory. And then they put it, this is to the detriment of the campaign, they put this on Facebook and these guys are clearly 27. And I don't think anyone under 40 has used Facebook. So <laughs> shame. Uh, yeah, power of good, good imagery, good messaging, simple messaging. Um, yeah, it makes a difference in health tech. It's very difficult to do, as Jess said, um, to get that balance between mm-hmm. um, simple messaging that actually talks to your, the, the people that you want to deliver the behaviours that you want. But yeah, a good example of it. So the last thing we're going to talk about today, uh, Anne Hathaway started a VC fund. Awesome. Jess, tell us about this. Okay, so that is a bit fake news. So I'm just <laughs> going to nip that in the bud right I just away. Thought, um, yeah, <laughs> so uh, we are all about accuracy and impartial reporting on health tech. Oh, don't fishing. let the truth get in the way of a good the story. Actual st- <laughs> the actual story is that Anne Hathaway has invested uh, in a VC fund, uh, all, all women-led, which is awesome. We talk a lot about the disparity in leadership, VC leadership, um, gender disparity particularly but also across other demographic representation um and i think one of the really interesting things about this not interesting but nice things to read was each of the three women who founded the um the fund called pact uh all did so they all basically were pregnant and had a child during that time and i think james you'll know how difficult it is to raise a fund um having done so in a past life um and so also you know i have not been there can't personally comment have witnessed friends family loved ones etc going through pregnancy and having children that's also really really hard and so to do both those things together is an amazing uh 
three amazing role models, I think, for women in business, in uh, investment, in VC, um, and in impact investing as well. So they, on their website, they say they uh, invest in access, so democratizing access to products and services, betterment, so solutions for personal and professional well-being, and climate as well, so targeting sustainability and climate change. Um, and I just think it's really, really cool and amazing to see the representation like this. Um, and rightly so, it's got some really good attention globally. Um, and it's nice to see it's also, you know, UK, Europe based as well. Um, so good for them. I'm looking forward to see seeing where uh, their their first kind of portfolio investments go, um, who they are. Uh, but I think there'll be this will be a, a nice story to follow. I think um, it's got a lot of attention, and rightly so. Yeah, I think it's really cool. They're, they're aiming at these mission-driven startups in their ABC categories: access, betterment, and climate. So definitely, some health tech will be in there. Um, Thirty million fund, uh, eighteen to twenty companies. It's cool. I think they've they've got a strategy, and and like you said, Jess, I, I think. It's about that representation. It's about people seeing and feeling that when they go to investor meetings at this fund, that they can talk about things that aren't going to make men squirm and the world will be a better place because of it. I am absolutely convinced. And yeah, let's just hope this is inspiring enough for others to know that this is possible. I think to raise a fund whilst pregnant and having young children, yeah, difficult enough to the point where you know, I, I lost interest in it. Um, and yeah, I think absolutely fair play to them and absolutely good luck to them. As I say, the world will be a better place because of it. Thanks guys. Um, yeah, if anybody wants to grab any of the stories that we talked about today, uh, you can head to healthhubpigeon.com. You can get the newsletter, um, subscribe, get into your inbox every single Sunday and yeah, check us out on LinkedIn and all of that stuff. Uh, thanks Henry and Jess for joining me. I will see you all next week.